Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. So this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My um, guest today is uh, James Scherer. He's an attorney and partner at Baker Law, and we'll be talking about uh, new areas of law that are becoming uh, super important with all these advancing technologies, you know, in the fields of AI, 3D printing, uh, et cetera. So, uh, James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, Rich? Good, good. Yeah. So tell me, um, like I said, the, the focus of this podcast is future technologies and I think everyone gets caught up in all the excitement of the technology itself, and very few people, except probably yourself and you know the right people, are thinking about all right, what's the the legal implications of all this new stuff? So what um, what technologies in particular are you focused on, and uh, the legalities around? So the the area that people seem most excited about, and excited kind of as a neutral term, like you can you can be excited when you're on a roller coaster, and maybe you're not having the best time. Uh, but the area that people seem most excited about is probably artificial intelligence. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is it's, you know, it sounds uh, really exciting and it's, it's something you've seen movies about. There's, there's kind of like a public idea of what artificial intelligence is out there. Yeah. And secondly, it's coming on really quickly. So there, there are a number of applications and really ways in which people do things that they've always done that are being changed pretty dramatically by the application of artificial intelligence. And one of the one of the easy examples is hiring practices, where if you think about companies who are online um, and taking in all these resumes, it's very, very easy now to apply to many, many different jobs at once. You've got an electronic copy of your resume, you send it out there and you know virtually paper the whole universe. Well, you know, those go someplace and these these companies have to have a way in which they can sift through all those resumes. And there's just no way that they're going to have a person sit there and put eyeballs on each page. So you have artificial intelligence directly affecting people's livelihoods and potential employment. And that's just one of those areas. The other one that, that seems as though it's resonant with our clients is the area of healthcare, where artificial intelligence is you know, it, it came on as an ancillary part of medical practice, and now it's it's kind of gaining steam as to what people expect. And the third reason, so we've got, it's just out in our public culture, people are excited, it's it's affecting, you know, very specific portions of work. It's an area that people do not feel confident that they know what's happening. I think that's with good reason. Right. It's It's tough to get a good sense of exactly what's going on, especially because, A, a lot of the salespeople in this space are... You know, they're good salespeople, but they may not be artificial intelligence, data scientists, uh, building the models themselves. So they may not know the answers to questions. And the, the answers to the questions aren't easy, necessarily. It, you know, it takes a lot of, of hard work and digging to figure out what's actually happening. And you kind of have to figure out what's happening so you can figure out how it matters to you and then what you have to worry about on the back end. Okay. So hiring, healthcare, and um, I guess processing leads or data for sales. So in, in terms of um, of hiring, you know, I, I spoke to a company called Alio, and they actually, instead of just reviewing a resume, they have like kind of this interactive text back and forth where people can apply for a job and the AI asks some questions, they answer the questions, and then it can set them up with an interview. That's like a very different way of hiring. But um, of the companies that you work with, how are they using the AI? Are they just 
parsing the resumes and scanning and looking for keywords? Or what's the next step here in the evolution that uh, they're going to be doing in terms of hiring? Well, sometimes they don't know. You know, they may they may outsource that. They may say, we want real viable, good candidates here. This is our general sense of who works at this type of organization. Uh, you know, we've got some startups that we counsel and there. They don't have like a lot of history for who's worked out. They just kind of have a general idea. Um, and, you know, with some of these technological areas, so that the people that develop these types of tools, they have more traditional or, or less traditional backgrounds and approaches. So, yeah, how do you how do you start to differentiate candidates there? And from our perspective as attorneys, how do you do that in a way that isn't going to affect protected classes? So if you were just to to build a model of artificial intelligence based on the hiring practices that had happened before, depending on what time frames you're looking at, you could have a model that that really returns the wrong type of candidate or or was missing entire groups of the population that would be terrific employees for you but had never been considered. So you know, artificial intelligence is great. It it can really help to take a lot of the work that's been done, automate it, start to give a little bit more shading and detail and contour to it. But you know, we don't want to get the end goal lost just because something's a little bit easier. Well, how would um, you know? I know right now in hiring, and again, I'm an outside observer. I'm not in the industry, but uh, you know, you're obviously not allowed to discriminate based on race or you know other factors. The algorithms that are being developed. Um, I would guess you have to watch out for, I guess you can call it algorithmic bias. Um, do you, can you say anything about that? How does that happen or not happen? How do you create algorithms that will work properly versus ones that can get you in trouble? You know, how would you even establish that there is a problem? I mean, those are terrific questions, and that's, that's exactly the type of analysis that our good clients are wrestling with. I mean, you know, they're coming and they're saying, okay, well, we're thinking about these issues. We want to avoid these types of problems. How can we do that? Whereas, you know, you don't want to find yourself in the, the position of never having considered those, you know, taking a process, putting it into place. It makes things easier because you don't have to look at all that collected information without understanding what the effects are. So looking at what you presented there, kind of want to break it up into different component parts. One is to say, okay, well, well, you know, what are we trying to accomplish by using, let's say, artificial intelligence or a, some kind of process that uses some portion of artificial intelligence or like advanced algorithmic ranking, putting things in front. Then you say, okay, well, what are we worried about? And do we have insight into how the artificial intelligence engine works? So can we look under the hood? Do we have somebody who's providing this service that can give us kind of an intelligible explanation of what's going on? You start to ask questions like you're a reporter and say, okay, well, how does this work? What can you tell me? On the back end, how can you audit it? Um, and I will say certain of these artificial intelligence algorithms or approaches that are like these multi-vector approaches, I can't comprehend them. Like they're, they're literally incomprehensible because the math becomes so complicated, you can't keep it in your head at once. There's a, right. a great story in the medical field we'll, we'll come back to if you'd like. But because of that, then we have to look at can we break the process up so that we can look at the component parts and judge those or see how they're working. Or are we going to be reliant on kind of a, an audit on the back end of the process to see if things are working in a way that maybe it quote-unquote works as far as the algorithm was designed, but does it have those issues about disparate impact? Does it, uh, you know, kind of gauge candidates along the lines of a disability or a racial preference or does it involve religion or is it affecting them because of age in some way? And if that's the case, then 
do we have to give up the entire process or can we tweak it so that those results are, are kind of sifted back and we've got a, a better approach generally? Hmm. Um, can you give any examples of um, a factor that could be problematic or an algorithm that could be problematic for people? Well, it's it, if you want to think like the best algorithms are built out of our historical knowledge. So they're, they're not just built off ideas of how we think things work. They're built off of real world data. So, you know, the best model of you is going to, it's, it's not just going to be a questionnaire to you about who you think you are. Um, and, and I'm certain, you know, have you just met you that you really do have a good sense of like who you are intrinsically, but you know, your phone will tell you with a lot better granularity what you spend your time doing, where you spend your time. Um, you might think that you only spend a half hour in front of the television and your phone would say, no, you really do spend two hours and 37 minutes. And you start to cross-reference that with your TiVo and it'll tell you exactly what you watch. You might think you like to watch a lot of PBS, but in reality, it's all reality television. You know, we, we're selective in what we think about ourselves and you know, candidates may be similar or people who are viewing resumes may be similar as well the data itself is going to tell a much truer picture. But the challenge then is if you've got these data sets that are very rich and accurate for what's going on, they can measure and return results that show, we call it digital redlining, that shows what past practices have been in, let's say, hiring, where, you know, if you want to look at CEO candidates over the course of the last 50 years, a model might present a CEO candidate that's you know, mid-50s, white, went to an Ivy League institution, is most certainly male, because that's who all the candidates had been. Now, that's not because they were necessarily the best candidates, but they were the people that got hired. So a model built off of past and prior data is going to return references like that. And that may not be right. what we want, and it certainly may not be appropriate given given the law. Hmm. Okay. Um, I guess moving on to the uh, healthcare aspect, how is AI that you're seeing uh, influencing healthcare right now? I know there's been you know, a lot of promise, but uh, I haven't seen much of it personally. You know, I'm not everybody, of course, but I haven't seen much of it personally in use yet. And I know there's strong privacy uh, laws like HIPAA surrounding medical data. So what are you seeing and what are the issues? So we have a number of clients in this space that are, are actively using artificial intelligence tools, building platforms, and trying to address those challenges. And here, it's um, you still got the disparate impact or that digital redlining issue but there are differences in people, and you're going to treat a child differently than you're going to treat an adult. You're going to treat a female differently than you would a male, or you're going to, you know, you've got different issues that affect people in different ways. So in some ways, you're, you're more focused on the results and their orientation. One of the reasons why you might not see a lot of it directly if you're a healthcare consumer, and, and hopefully it's in part because you haven't been that sick. But where we're seeing this come into play in the very first instance is something called a differential diagnosis. So the way it works, and if you've ever watched one of these medical shows, you'll see this, someone comes in and they present with a number of symptoms. And a doctor or a nurse, practitioner or a physician assistant, you know, starts to take their vitals, looks at um, what their complaints are, looks at their kind of general appearance, and starts to make determinations about what they think might happen. And you've, you've got a sweaty uh, forehead and your hands are clammy. Well, that's an indicator, but it might be an indicator of seven different things. So you start to cross-reference that with other, other data points about that individual, and you can build up an idea of what the problem might be. So where artificial intelligence can come into play is it doesn't just look at that you know, kind of initial survey or uh, you know, that initial examination from someone. It can go back through your medical records, especially as that you know, electronic medical records come more online. 
it goes through your EMR data and starts to say, hey, that symptom can mean what you're saying, but it also might be this other thing. And, and actually, this medication, he used to be on, on this pill, and he hasn't been for a while, and he might not remember it, but that actually makes it more likely than not that this other issue could be in play. So a differential diagnosis here might present, you know, seven different possibilities, and the artificial intelligence engine might present possibilities that the treating physician might not have considered, and it might start to rank those. So again, mm-hmm. it's, it's not as though the AI is practicing medicine per se, but it's presenting all these different options to the, the treating physician or the practitioner and saying, hey, you might want to check this out. Even though there's only a 10% likelihood, according to our model, take a look at this. So, you know, that's a, that's a way in which it's directly affecting and providing medical care. There have been some models that are built out of, uh, out of artificial intelligence engines. One in particular was done for myocardial infarction, so heart attack references. And the model looked at all this data and started to build up a picture of, you know, particular types of patients. And it became really astute in determining a diagnosis for those types of patients. Now, the American Medical Association and all the medical schools came back to the scientists and said, this is fantastic. This is a really good result for patients. How can we teach our physicians to undertake the same type of analysis? We want to improve care. We want to improve their ability to determine this. And the scientists responded. They said, hey, that's fantastic. We're glad you guys are on board. We don't know. And they said, what do you mean? And the scientists said, we don't know how our model works. We know the data it came from. We know what the outputs are. You know, we, we built and tweaked this model to achieve statistical significance, and it turned out, you know, perhaps even better than we, we thought. But we couldn't tell you how it works. It's murky. There's a lot of right. different variables. The system weighs them. We know that it works. Um, it's just a question of exactly how. So we can't tell a physician how to think about it because we don't really under, understand the intricacies. We just we have something that works, and it's a little bit like a black box. That's how a lot of AI systems are, yeah. So uh, for healthcare, you're saying it's not going to take the place of the doctor, but it's going to be kind of, um, I guess, an algorithmic advisor to the doctor. The doctor will still make the determination, but now, you know, he or she will have better information at their fingertips. They'll have more choices and more, uh, they can't review every paper. They can't look into every possible, uh, you know, symptom and how it might correlate with someone's condition. So it sounds like that's what's going to be happening, is that they'll have these helpers, these expert helpers. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you've got reference librarians that are trying to help you in practice. Now, I've spoken to, and we've got medical insurance clients, we've got healthcare clients, but I've also, you know, presented to medical professionals, and some of them will say, yeah, this is, this is a real concern for us, but not just because it improves care. There, there's also this idea that you've got, you've got a lot of interested parties when it comes to someone's care and their health. So you've got the patient, obviously, and that, that should be paramount. You've got the practitioners who are there administering the care and figuring out what's, what's likely best for the patient. But I had one uh, physician assistant who was talking to me, and she said, well, you know, like a lot of these systems in the hospitals will spit out these diagnoses. So the blood pressure machine might spit out an idea of what's going on with the patient just based on, like, these very specific data points. And this happens all the time. Like, you go into uh, a healthcare office, one of the first things they do is strap you into that blood pressure cuff and do those readings. And this one was of the opinion that half the time the diagnosis was wrong. You think, okay, well, no harm, no foul. It's not so you're hurting the feelings of the blood uh, pressure cuff machine. But who, who are, who's another interested party when it comes to healthcare? Well, it's the insurer. And if you've got an insurance company who's involved and gets to look at the bills in the back end and gets to play Monday morning quarterback, 
they might look at that blood pressure diagnosis and say, hey, this ended up being correct in this instance, and you, practitioner, ignored it. So what does that mean about the claim? Can they turn down the claim? Does the hospital have to eat it? Does a person who had some, you know, relatively unsophisticated machine offer up some advice that was, you know, lumped into everything and then weighed and considered and ultimately uh, discarded, do they have some evidence there that you can see how it, it quickly grows in complexity? And, you know, this is part of this idea that these, these systems are getting implemented because they can. You've got engineers who are excited to share them, but a lot of the after effects down the road are kind of still very much in process. And that's, that's part of the excitement for us uh, in, in dealing with a very new area of practice. Okay. Um, when will these systems come online? I mean, I, I haven't, again, personally interacted with any of them. Have you seen them in action yet, or are they being held back by uh, development or laws or, you know, other concerns? Um, I don't think they're being held back by laws. Uh, those, are, those are still very much in process, and there are a number of groups who are trying to address those actively and presently. And, and again, I think part of it is you're, you're not seeing it because it's not in your face. These are, are more subtle systems. They're, they're being added to these existing practices. They're just trying to help people who are already doing their jobs. And, you know, it's not necessarily being advertised. I mean, you might see it if you have a company that's offering, like, executive uh, consulting or, you know, a, a place where they want to show that they're adding in more sophistication to their practice. But as far as like medical issues and healthcare issues, uh, insurance issues, HR issues, this is absolutely in practice. Um, marketing is probably the best example where they've just got these enormous sets of data here and they're sifting through them. And not only is artificial intelligence like impacting what you see, what you view, it, you know, creating your worldview to a large extent, it, you know, there, it's also this giant incubation lab. Um, you know, A or B, you never know what you're going to see, but you're part of experiments constantly during the day just to see what's going to be better for somebody else. So and I think actually it's probably a testament to those companies that are using artificial intelligence that you don't know that they are. So it's, it's subtle enough that your experience hasn't been impacted. You haven't felt like something's a little bit off or suddenly you're in an artificial system rather than just, you know, living your day-to-day -day life. But yeah, behind the scenes, because there's so much more data, there's these economies of scale that, to your point, no one can read all the medical literature. Nobody can yeah. really go through and tell you exactly what's going on in your life. You couldn't journal all that stuff. But now you've got these devices that can, and then you've got systems that can start to use the journaling components of your phone, your TiVo, your Alexa, your Fitbit, your Nest, all of those smart systems that can you know, paint a picture of you and then start to develop that to impact your life. Any any medical conditions where you see AI being used that people may or may not know about or situations? Well, I think it's uh, hmm. a lot are in process. You know, it, I think um, you've got these courses of care within insurance companies where they look and they say, okay, well, we can we can see that X symptom might lead to Y condition that might lead to Z treatment, something like that. You can say, well, if you've got poor diet habits, or you've got a drug addiction, we know that that's going to impact this system, and then it's going to lead to this effect. And, you know, how can we start to influence behavior, you know, use the Richard Thaler nudge system, or use checklist or whatever it is earlier in the process to help save money. So AI programs, and there's a number of different consultants building up in the space, are, are absolutely actively working in that area. 
And then for the, the more discrete things, you can say the myocardial infarction example. I mean, that's in process. Likewise, if you've got certain systems or, or applications that are much more about pattern recognition, think of like all the imagery that's provided through x-rays, through MRIs, through CAT scans. Any place or time where you've got these really large data sets with a lot of, a lot of data points that are relying on pattern recognition, you can start to, to kind of suss out or tease out what diagnoses might be. Those are not only in process and affecting your care, they're, they're being refined and growing in complexity and sophistication and accuracy every day. So, you know, you, you just imagine if you've got a picture involved, chances are you've got an expert system that's, that's learning from that data um, every day. Oh, so if I had an MRI of, uh, you know, I don't know, my, my lungs and they were looking for possible lung or breast cancer, you're saying that there are already AI systems that would also weigh in on the determination of whether it is or isn't cancer. Yeah, I think so. Or, or if something else is happening, if you have um, asbestosis or mesothelioma, I think where you might be concerned is if you um, you go in for uh, an MRI um, because you're you're having some chest congestion and you don't even get the results back from your doctor, but what if you got like a, an ad for a mesothelioma lawyer uh, that pops up on your phone or you, you, know, you get a packet uh, a couple of days later in the mail? I think that's where it starts to get a little bit scary. And that's why, you know, to, to a point you made earlier, where you want to be really protective of certain types of data, where we think that that's, perhaps that's inviolate. And we, we want to keep those things safe uh, from discussions with other people or affecting then different types of employment options that you have or, or other things that you want to do. Gotcha. Okay. And then uh, last area we you talked about very briefly was uh, sales. So is that... Um looking for trends in your customer data and identifying who the best people to be would would be to re- reach out for you know to propose uh, a product you're selling or you know how is it being used well it's it's that but with so much more specificity so it's not just like who who's the best person to reach out to it's you know who's our target audience for which of our products at what price um will they buy the product Uh, Do they like a a specific type of color? Do they want to see this ad in conjunction with what type of app? Do they want to see it at a certain time of day? Do they want to see it in connection with other types of ads? And if so, what are they? Um, Do we want to catch them on a certain day of the week or time of the year? Or, you know, what might work best for them? This is, it's amazing stuff. And you wouldn't think necessarily that the, uh, the ads are so sophisticated, but you know, we're used to some of these pop-ups or, or ads and, you know, kind of trailing cookies that, that aren't awesome. I'm, I'm trying to remember how the joke went. Someone had, had posted where they were looking for, like, a washer and dryer. So, of course, they went out and searched for one. And then they went and bought a washer and dryer because they needed one. And then they kept getting ads for washers and dryers. They're like, I'm not collecting washers and dryers. Like, <laughs> this is a, a right. one-and-done transaction. Uh, so, so there's still a ways to go. But that washer and dryer company, you know, once that, that purchase had made, you'd think that the, the advertising would switch over or, you know, a handshake to the company that makes the detergent or does those buttons where you can order things or dryer sheets or, you know, you might invest in, hey, you can wear this type of clothes now because the washing machine that you bought can handle these delicates in a way that perhaps prior machinery or earlier technology couldn't. You can see how these areas can grow, and I think for for our clients that are, you know, kind of confronting them, because they want, they they would love greater uptake in marketing. They want a more resilient uh, connection with their customers. They want the social media to work, Um, and 
how can they do that without running afoul of privacy laws, without losing control of intellectual property? That's another area where there's a lot of development here because, again, some of the best models are built off of this historical data. But there's a question as to who owns the data and then who owns a model. If you've got a really fundamentally sound model that you've built off of one of these systems, then who retains the intellectual property there? How can you license that? Right. How can you, you protect those things? And when you know, healthcare is a good example and you're pooling data from many different sources, then yeah, who, who ultimately gets the benefit? Hopefully the patient, but you know, as far as like all the different participants there, you know, who, who's the one that's gonna, you know, gonna move forward with that and, and show the, the biggest benefit? Well, very good. What, uh, what's your recommendation for companies that wanna you know, make AI products? Should they, I mean, should they consult with counsel on what specific issues or just in general? You know, what are some of the things you can identify for, for startups that they need to pay attention to? Well, it, it certainly doesn't hurt, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to speak with them. I think some of the benefits of, of discussing this with counsel are engineers are amazing, and they live in the realm of, you know, what can we do? It, it's often the case that there's not as much consideration or sometimes intentionally no consideration paid toward what may we do, um, what are we allowed to do, it's it, even when it comes to collecting data, I think one of the concerns when we speak to clients is, hey, when you're going out and getting all of this data you want to use to, to start to build a model or to deploy against your, your customers, do you need everything you're getting? Because once you get it, you have certain retentant responsibilities for it, regardless of whether you end up utilizing it. And, you know, it's with, with great power comes great responsibility. We can help on the front end in determining what an approach might be that's a little bit more responsible, that's a little bit more measured, and ultimately, the more measured, I'd say, the more defensible it is. Likewise, we can help navigate. And again, that intellectual property component has been one that's been really front of mind for a lot of the clients that, that we've worked on counseling. How can we help them think about that in the front end? How it, I mean, this might be, you might be a data company that manufactures something, and you might think of yourself as a manufacturer, but but really... You've got amazing insight into your clients, and that might be one of the most valuable parts of your enterprise. Well, how do you protect that? How do you protect that for five years from now when it ends up being a bigger component part of your industry and a bigger component part of what it is that you do as an organization? You know, that's, that's an area in which sometimes there aren't a lot of good, clear answers, but there is, you know, current client benchmarking. We're involved in a lot of those discussions. And I would say if you get good practitioners involved with those people that have some experience, you're not reinventing the wheel. Um, and again, we're not, I mean, the firm itself has worked on different artificial intelligence programs. We've done bespoke work on client on, on behalf of clients. But here, I'm just talking about the, the regular counseling you might expect from an attorney to sit down and say, you know, what do I have to be worried about here? What are some kind of general constraints? What are the questions to ask so that I've done my due diligence either in, you know, acquiring a solution or developing something and, you know, how can I, I best position myself? There's no perfect answer here yet, but, you know, protecting yourself and considering a lot of these things at an opportunity or a time when they matter is, I mean, really the benefit that you get a good counselor involved. That's what they can bring. Very good. All right, James, so what's the best way for uh, for listeners to reach out if they have questions or need help? I mean, they are welcome to email me at j-s-h-e-r-e-r at bakerlaw.com, B-A-K-E-R-L-A-W.com, or they can look up Baker Hostetler, H-O-S-T-E-T-L-E-R, which is the firm, and of course, my name, James Shear, and we've written a number of different things on this. We've got a pretty active blog, but there's also a number of different papers that go into 
algorithm development, so the, the models that AI is built off of. If you want some good resources to just start to inform yourself, um, you don't have to reach out to us in the first instance, although you're, you're perfectly welcome to and we would be happy to help walk you through the process. But if you want to get part of it just under your belt, if you want to read these things at your leisure so that when you come into the conversations, you've already got those first steps taken, I'm happy to point you to the right resources and a lot of those could be found linked to my and my team's bios on our website. And that is bakerlaw.com. Okay, well, very good, James. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.